just out today in the New England Journal of Medicine, Ivocitinib and Azacitidine in IDH1 Mutant AML. This is the paper you've been waiting for. It's the Agile study, and it's the study that aims to move Ivocitinib into the front line in AML in older, frailer people who cannot tolerate intensive induction therapy. Now, I have not had that much time to read this paper. I've had about an hour to read the paper, get into the supplement, get into some of the history, but I've already found so many things, so many things. This is my prelim read. I got to get it out there. I have to get it out there because this is really one of the worst papers I've ever seen. You'll already see why. I've got at least six problems in this paper, and you will see why. And I'm going to show you with a series of illustrations. Number one, a little bit of a timeline. Let's run through the timeline. The timeline is key. This randomized controlled trial of azacitidine and ivocitinib versus placebo azacitidine occurred and started enrolling in March of 2018. That's when the accrual starts. And the accrual was meant to accrue 392 people for a primary endpoint of overall survival, and it needed 278 events. And at the time it launched, I think that sounds to me quite good. Prove to me, in somebody who's ineligible for intensive chemotherapy up front, that if you add ivocitinib, an IDH1 mutant, AML, that you will have a survival benefit over just days alone, which is the standard of care at the time it started enrolling. They needed 278 events. They were going to wait for 90-some events for the first interim analysis. Then, in July of that year, July 20th, 2018, ivocitinib was approved, FDA approved for IDH1 mutant AML, and immediately it became a second line, third line, a salvage option. We started using it as a salvage option. It was, you know, generally tolerated well. It worked very well in IDH1 mutants. It quickly became the standard of care. The moment that happens, the moment that happens a few months into this study, the study, if you ran it in the United States, the country that, of course, is the country that's going to be paying the bill for ivocitinib and going to be giving the most of it, if you ran in the United States, it would be a trial of ivocitinib plus AZA up front versus AZA, but then when you progress on AZA, you should get the standard of care as of July 2018, which is ivocitinib at some point in your treatment course. So that's what happened in July of 2018. We'll come back to that, how many people actually get it. Then in March of 2020, March 23rd, 2020, we saw the big press release, the Viale press release, azacitidine venetoclax versus aza alone in the exact same population, over 75, couldn't take intensive chemotherapy. This has a overall survival benefit and it is a whopping benefit. It is a clear benefit with a large hazard ratio. In time, we learned the magnitude of the benefit, 9.6 versus 14 months. It is a paradigm-changing drug. I mean, I think right now it's, it's swallowed up all the market share. It's swallowed up so much market share that Sonny Kim and I wrote in the European Journal of Cancer a paper that says sometimes more treatment options means worse outcomes. And we talk about Azaven, which has been tested against Aza and is better than Aza, but it hasn't been tested against 7 plus 3. And we talk about how there's so many people on the cusp. They were the people who you would have said they could have qualified for 7 plus 3 because, you know, you thought Aza was just not good enough. But now Aza Ven is an option. You kind of siphon off some of those people and you give it to more people. And it's possible that it can even erode outcomes. Check out that paper in European Journal of Cancer. But yet, be that as it may, my point is it enjoys massive uptake. I mean, I hear Aza Ven, Aza Ven, Aza Ven. Everywhere I go, all I hear is rah, rah, rah. It has really taken over. You know, they really have gotten the market share. That happened in March 2020. This trial continued to enroll, continued to enroll for one more year, one more long year. They kept enrolling people on placebo AZA when that is no longer the standard of care. The doctors have moved away from that. They enrolled until March 27, 2021. But before I come to that, let me see what else happened. In May of that year, May 26, 2020, 
and we can speculate why, but I have some ideas. Clinicaltrials.gov shows the endpoint change. They changed the endpoint of this study. It was overall survival, but then they made it event-free survival, something like, do you have a remission at week 24, or time until you relapse or death, whichever comes first, some composite primary endpoint that they've invented that we haven't been using in this space and wasn't the initial primary endpoint. And they say that, you know, if you do this, maybe we can get away with just 200 people instead of 400 people like we needed. Something like that was their excuse. And then, a few months later, this is super interesting, in March 27th, 2021, this trial halts. And it halts because the DSMB found at 74 deaths there was an imbalance. There was 28 deaths on the combined arm, there were 46 deaths on the control arm, and they decided to halt the trial, cross everyone over. They did so with 146 people randomized. Now remember, in the beginning, they wanted 392 people. They've got less than half of what they wanted, and now they've halted this study. So why did they change that endpoint, do you think? Hmm? I have a little bit of a guess. I think they knew. The heat was on. The moment A's of N became the standard of care, they knew they're not going to get away with randomizing people to this delinquent, unethical control arm for much longer. They need to wrap this up fast, and they need a win, and they're not going to get another bite of the apple, because if they have to go again, they got to go against A's of N. I don't know if they're going to pull it off. And so... I wonder if that influenced, I don't know if it did or not, I am just speculating, but I wonder if it influenced that endpoint change. They needed to wrap it up fast. And also, they're not accruing at the rate they want. By the time they halt this trial, they got 146 people, they said they needed 392. They're not accruing at the rate they want, so they need a way to tie this together quick, and the window of opportunity for this delinquent control arm is closing. In an ethical world, it has already closed, but they probably are, well, I mean, there's proof. They'll continue to randomize people to the unethical control arm for another year. That's proof. They just did that. I don't know how they live with themselves by doing that because you wouldn't do that if it's your own mother, um, but that's what they're doing. Anyway, I'll come to that. This is why people, I think, loathe this clinical trials in oncology. Then here's another thing. Well, I'll come. maybe I'll come back to it. Let me go through my points. Number one, the first error of this study, only two patients on that control arm when they progressed got post-protocol ivocidinib. Only two patients on that control arm when they got post-protocol ivocidinib. Your primary endpoint was OS. A few months into your study, the FDA gave you the approval for ivocidinib in the second line, and we started using that drug, and yet somehow you're running your trial in a way that only two people who progress get this drug. That is delinquent. You know that's delinquent. You know that's not what's going on in this country. Your trial immediately needed to be IVO plus AZA versus AZA, and upon progression, IVO. It needed to be that. Come on, don't play games. We all know what you're doing here. I know exactly what you're doing. You're doing it because it'll give you the win. You want to go to a place where it's very difficult to get ivocidinib second line. This is the classic industry tactic, and I talk about it extensively in my book. I don't like it. I think more and more people are getting fed up with it. We feel sick to our stomach thinking about a patient who's going to die without getting ivocidinib in the control arm, even though that is the prescribing patterns in the United States are taking off. You already have FDA approval in the United States. What justifies this? What's the whole point of accelerating approval to get access to therapy if you can somehow find the control arm patients and deprive them of that drug so you can get a win? Sickens me. Disgust me. Problem two. You let people die on your control arm for one year getting Aza placebo when you know Aza Ven has a survival benefit. You know it. It's been press released. It has an OS benefit. When have you last gotten that? I can tell you. Not since Aza. Not since Aza have you gotten that for a transplant and transplant ineligible intensive chemo ineligible population. Not since Aza. It's been so long. And yet you continue one more year. One more year you're randomizing people. I don't like this. 
enough of these games. I know what people have been saying. They say, well, you know, we had to do this. The FDA made me. The FDA didn't make you run a delinquent negligent trial. You are basically saying they let you get away with that. Not not made you, let you get away with. That's very different than make somebody. When somebody lets you get away with, doesn't mean they wanted you to do that. It doesn't mean they would have blocked you from actually making your trial ethical. You should have immediately halted your study. Your study wasn't applicable to the modern landscape. You need to run a new study. That's not my problem. That's your problem. You want to sell your expensive, overpriced drug. Frankly, it is overpriced. Um, you have to do the right study. It's not up to me to make your life easier by allowing you to mistreat the control arm patients. In fact, that sickens me. Problem three. You changed your endpoint after the A's of N results, didn't you? You lowered your sample size, didn't you? Didn't you lower that? And that's really interesting because A's of N, it turns out now we have some evidence that it actually probably even works better in the IDH mutant population, median OS 17.5 months versus like in Viale, what was the intervention arm? 14 months, you know, somebody tell me. But, you know, it's better in the IDH mutant population. You changed your primary endpoint just a few months later, I think, because you knew you're not going to get to 392 before everyone had a heart attack. Because it was going to take you a long time to get to 392, and that means a lot more people assigned to azo placebo. And how are you going to keep justifying that in year two or three after it has become standard of care? And so you decided to switch to EFS. But then you decided to pull another 180. Another 180. Problem four. You halt your trial early based on a non-primary endpoint, which was the old primary endpoint, but it ain't the primary endpoint anymore because you just changed your endpoint a few months ago. But now you're looking at OS to halt your trial. Interesting. And interesting. Here's another kicker. I gotcha. I got you real bad because I know your original protocol, the first interim analysis would be at 93 deaths, but you are stopping your analysis to 74 deaths and you're looking at the imbalance. But why are you even looking at 74 deaths? And now you have to do some statistical post-hoc procedure of O'Brien Fleming stopping boundary post-hoc. And I don't even know what that does to your alpha error. And to be honest, it probably blows it through the roof. Anyway, those are technical points. But here's the key. When you ran this study, you thought you thought 93 deaths could occur before you could even look at the data and that would be within the realm of an ethical practice. Now suddenly, you think 74 deaths, you got to halt this trial real quick because it's just too much, it's just too many imbalance and you know we don't in good conscience want to continue. That, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I, I think there's a problem there. There's a contradiction. What you, what you know is you can no longer continue in good conscience to keep assigning people to the control arm. You need a way to wrap this up fast. And that's why I think you looked at 74 events. Now, I'm speculating. I don't know for sure, but it don't look good. It don't look good that you're looking at, that you're halting at 74 events when your original protocol said interim analysis one is at 93 events. It don't look good at all at 74. And you also just change your endpoint, by the way. So you're not looking at EFS, huh? Now you're back to OS. Interesting. Problem five. Problem five. Quote. This is what you write in your manuscript. We're going to talk about who's actually doing this writing, but we're going to talk about this. Quote, in addition, overall survival has traditionally been regarded as a standard primary endpoint for trials in acute myeloid leukemia. However, event-free survival has been proposed as an important endpoint for assessing the anti-leukemic potential of a precision drug before the confounding effects of subsequent therapies. Okay, you know what? I've had it with you and this confounding effects. When a drug is the standard of care in a second-line setting, or there are other drugs we give to patients, that is not confounding overall survival. It's called running the correct study. You want to know if me hemorrhaging money on your new costly drug in the upfront setting is better than what I'm currently doing in my clinical practice. And by me giving those drugs post-protocol in my clinical practice, as I do, that's not confounding your OS. That's actually asking the relevant question. You giving delinquent control arm care, only allowing two people to get ivocidin, that's confounding your analysis because you're asking in a world that can afford ivocidinib frontline 
but somehow can't afford it post-protocol. Does ivocidinib have a benefit? Oh, and by the way, uh, very few people can ever touch venetoclax and we can't change our control arm. That world doesn't exist. In a country that cannot afford ivocidinib second line, they sure as hell can't afford it front line. And uh, in a country that's not going to be giving venetoclax aza, why are they going to be giving ivocidinib uh, aza? How, how are they going to be able to afford that? You're, you're running these trials. You are... You're playing this game, and I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it because you are. these trials do not help anybody in any country. They don't answer the U.S. question. And by the way, we're the ones who are going to end up purchasing this drug, and this is the U.S. regulatory studies that you're pursuing. They don't answer the questions in the countries that can't afford these drugs because they already can't give it second line. So how are they going to be able to afford it first line? So I think that's a problem. Don't tell me. Don't call this confounding. You don't understand confounding. You use the word, but you have no clue what it means. All right, problem six. And this is my real problem with this whole thing and why I think this is the worst study. Who, who are the editors of New England Journal of Medicine that is going to allow someone to submit a manuscript with flipping endpoints, uh, looking early, earlier than the initial uh, primer, earlier than the initial interim analysis by the original statistical protocol, uh, pr flip-flopping your protocol back and forth? Is it OS? Is it not OS? Is it OS? Who's going to allow you to not deprive the control arm patients post-protocol of ivocidinib? Who's going to allow you not to change the control arm to azaven when it's already the de facto standard of care? Who, where are the editors on this? Why are they letting this in the journal of New England Journal of Medicine? They're complicit in this. They're just seduced by, this is a historic thing since Longo's been there. They are seduced by precision oncology. They love the idea that it's an IDH1 inhibitor, and they don't think that these statistical, these clinical trials issues are salient, but they're very salient. They're as salient as they come. And so you know what? Longo, fail. Uh, the, whoever reviewed this document, and I want, I wish I could know who the reviewers were. I'd also like to look them in uh, open payments to see how many of them are taking money from Agios, the company. I want to know that too. Uh, fail, 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 fail. Three fails at least. It'll probably got three reviews, maybe more. And editor fail. Total failure. I mean, it, I wouldn't even print this in New England Journal. It doesn't belong in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's not a, it's not a phase three study. It's a randomized trial of like 70 people when you start to randomize 400 and you keep playing these games with me. Don't play games with me. I know, these, I know, what, the, I know what the purpose of the games is, by the way, because if someday I, I switch sides, uh, I can come up with a lot better games, by the way. By the way, but I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm a professor. I'm not, I'm not going to, but you know, don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. Okay. Number two, the medical writer. Again, help from a medical writer. What are we doing here? What is this medical writer business? You want to get somebody to write this kind of language that the post-protocol care, you know, EFS is the better endpoint because it's not confounded by effective subsequent therapy. Confounded. This is medical writer jargon. This isn't the way doctors talk or sensible people whose brains are working talk in this space. This is jargon. I don't like it one bit. The authors are complicit, obviously. Either they're asleep at the wheel, which is the best case scenario, or they actually understand some of the problems going on here um, and the culture. The culture of oncology. The culture of oncology is so off-putting. You know, I think the only reason people are comfortable is they don't fully understand the depth of the problem. And when they read a book like Malignant, then, like my good friend Aaron Goodman, they start contacting me and texting me saying, hey, look at this study, as he did. And he quickly found that that post-protocol use was a problem. And then, you know, like my friend Monty, they start to find things. And the more people sort of read that book and the more they sort of realize that it is a uh, very logical argument about how cancer trials should be and where, the ways in which the industry perverts the system, they come to see the wisdom of this approach. So, the culture of oncology, it's rotten. 
I mean, I see so many people who come and they say they want better care for vulnerable groups, marginalized groups. This is, the, this is where you need to fight. This is the battlefield. The battlefield is, are we going to allow multi-billion dollar corporations to use flawed, negligent studies to seek broad U.S. approval and swallow billions of dollars? Are we going to allow that? Are we going to allow it for boosters? Are we going to allow it for Paxlovid? Where's the data for uh, uh, vaccinated people? Are we going to allow it for cancer drugs? Are we going to allow corporations to use very low levels of evidence to swallow up collective money, taking it away from poor and vulnerable people, stagnating wages? Are we going to allow that? And if you are not fighting this battle on these studies, you are allowing it. If you were enrolling people on this study, if you're on Twitter cheerleading for these things, if you're reading these papers superficially without pointing out these things that I pointed out to you, you are complicit. So this is the battle. I want to see you on this battle. And this is why people get fed up with oncology real quick. And the moment they start to see these problems, the moment it is harder and harder to ignore. So that's my sixth problem. That's all I got. Maybe I'll show that timeline once again. Accrual starts. Sec they get the approval for ivocidinib, yet they're not giving it second line. Azoven becomes the standard of care, yet they don't change the control arm. They change the clinical trials endpoint from OS to EFS and downgrade their sample size. But then just a few months later, they all of a sudden say, hey, listen, with 74 deaths, we got to halt this thing, even though the initial uh, statistical analysis plans that don't look until the 90s. This is a lot of problems. I, I think that even this FDA, with all its rot inside and all the errors it makes, I think even this FDA might say that some of these shenanigans are problematic um, and, uh, and, and the timing just looks terrible. And you can go, and I'll try to post as many images as I can in this video. So this is a plenary session. Uh, if you're listening on the audio podcast, I want you to uh, look at the video. I have a lot of visuals here. Uh, I also want to say that if you're listening to the audio podcast, uh, how come I don't hear from you anymore? I used to get a lot of emails uh, from the audio listeners. I want you to go to my website, www.vinaykpersad.com, and send me a note that way. If you listen, if you still listen to the audio podcast, if you're an oncologist out there and you think it's interesting. Okay. And if you watch it on YouTube, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. You know, I've had about an hour to process this, pull these things together. If I have a deeper dive, I think there's even some other things that I was thinking about that I, I wanted to look into. These are my first past thoughts. I think these are big problems. I think the timeline speaks for itself. You know, you can look through this, look through the clinicaltrials.gov. You'll see. Okay. Until next time, we'll be back with either COVID policy on, on YouTube. We'll be back with either COVID policy or cancer medicine on the audio podcast. We tend to keep it to cancer medicine because I'm sick of listening to you complain to me. Okay. Until next time. And I forgot to mention one thing. The reason endpoint switching and looking early and halting early matters is that all these things inflate, inflate spurious findings. You're much more likely to find a false effect, and the effect you do find is much more likely to be exaggerated. So whatever the absolute improvement in OS is in this study, even with all the flaws, if you ran it at a much larger sample size as they intended at 392 people, you would find that it's probably a lot smaller. Because all of these things mean they're much more likely to halt when it happens to be at a moment that's most favorable to the company and not as a pre-specified, pre-planned statistical analysis plan. There's another point here. When the power is very low, and the power is low here, even, you know, not a post hoc power, a, a priori power calc would be very low. And when you have power failure, low power, people worry about errors where you fail to document that something has a benefit when in fact a benefit exists. But the other problem is when you find a benefit, 
particularly on a secondary endpoint or something you're not looking at, that benefit is much more likely to be exaggerated in magnitude and much more likely to be spurious. So here, I really don't know what the benefit of this drug is given up front against a delinquent control arm with delinquent post-protocol therapy. But even if you did all the things right, I suspect this is exaggerated and the true effect is smaller. And azaven is probably the better option for these people, followed by ivocitinib, which is what most people are doing right now, then ivocitinib, aza, followed by what? Azaven or find a way to not give them ven or, or not give them anything at all, or, not, or give them very poor levels of therapy like this study. Um, correction, give them poor levels of therapy like in this study. I don't know. So... You know, uh, I, I think that this is not a practice-changing study, and, and these problems are sort of insurmountable, and they need to sort of rerun a new study entirely and uh, go back to the drawing board. And maybe they want to do Azaven plus this drug versus Azaven alone or something different, but this is not good at all.